Oh, snap, snap, snap. The world is finally waking up to the crap that's baked into and sprayed on kibble dog food. No longer can commercial pet food manufacturers fool us with pretty pictures and false promises. This is the raw dog food truth. The view and opinions expressed on this podcast are not intended to replace medical advice. Before starting any raw diet, do research, ask lots of questions, and consult your vet. Good morning, everybody. I'm Dee Dee Mercer Moffat, the CEO of Raw Dog Food and Company, where your pet's health is our business and we're friends. Don't let friends feed kibble if they're any type of friend at all. Man, you know what, Dr. Jasek? Um, you and I do so much education out there. You're doing talks, you're doing webinars with me and with other folks. Um, you're getting ready to start doing a Facebook Live. And yet we still have so much craziness going on out there in the community about the raw food diet. The latest one, let's tell everybody that we just heard, was that raw meat uh, would cause blindness in children. <laughs> now, do we need to toss out, do we all need to become vegans? I don't even get this. This is one of your, uh, one of your uh, great pet parents who's trying to do well by her pets, went to her other traditional vet, and the vet actually stated that the CDC said that raw meat, and I think she was feeding chicken, maybe talking about chicken specifically, uh, would cause blindness in children. What is going on? I know. That's just, that's just crazy. Well, you know, they said it's full of intestinal parasites, which, you know, granted, there are, there are some forms of larvae you know, if children are exposed to them, intestinal parasites that can get in the body and migrate to different parts, including the eyes. I mean, that's like extremely rare. Those are those like really rare freaky pictures that, you know, they show you in school because, you know, I mean, it happens one in, you know, out of how many millions. I mean, it's very, very rare, but, but the, the real, so that's a, that's a big, that's a big statement that just, does not happen very often. Um, but the, but the premise there is that they're saying that raw meat is full of intestinal parasites. It's like, so where did that come from? Because, you know, that's intestinal parasites live in the intestines. They're in the stool of, you know, the, the animal or the host. Um, they're not just hanging out in the muscle tissue and they're very, very species specific. So if, if a dog's eating beef or chicken diet, they're not going to become infected by the, the parasites that infect those animals. You know, they're, they're very, they're very different. And really, unless we were talking about this yesterday, the only way a dog's going to get intestinal parasites that are going to cause a problem from raw meat is if a dog comes around and poops on that food before the dog eats it. It's a fecal oral transmission. They have to be exposed to the fecal material of a infected dog. That's how it's transmitted. And where did this information come from that raw dog food is full of intestinal parasites? I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous. If that's true, does that mean like all our grocery store meat is contaminated? So you bring meat home for your, for your family and you're eating a bunch of of you know parasites and it's going to make your children go blind like it's just it's just so i mean when you just start thinking about it 
it, it doesn't even make any sense. And yet these are intelligent people putting this information, telling clients, and it just, it confuses people so much because every time they go in, they hear some other story about how, how horrible raw food is. And I, you know, I start pets on raw food all the time and just watch them thrive one after another. They, they do great. You know, some struggle a little bit more with the transition, but for the most part, those pets jump on that food and they're eating like, you know, like there's no tomorrow. They're just, they're just loving it. So I, I don't know where this information comes from. I, and this, again, we've talked about this and I would just really caution people. Don't just believe what you hear. Ask where this information is coming from. Ask where, you know, is there, is there research supporting this? Because it's, it's all propaganda and, and there is no support for it. So the takeaway is don't let your dog eat food that another dog has pooped on. Right. That would be bad. Yeah, that yeah. would be bad. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, there's just so much. But basically what we are saying is, you guys, you've got to, you've got, I would have stopped Dr. Jasek and I would have said, well, have you had a client, an actual patient that has had a child go blind? Have you, do you know? of anyone who's had a patient that's had a child go blind? Right. Or, or is this just one that you blindly pulled out of your bootay? You know, I think it's, I think there's, you know, one good thing that, that I, I see in this bizarre information is that I, I believe this is just being all created by the corporation selling the dry foods, but the, the reason that they're pushing so hard to discredit raw is I think it's starting to take hold and they're afraid of the competition. So like, well, we just got to keep putting out more and more and more bizarre propaganda to try to, we've got to scare people away from raw. So the, you know, E. coli and the salmonella wasn't working and now, and then the botulism isn't working. So let's talk about it makes children go blind. Maybe that'll get people to stop feeding it. I really think that they're just upping the ante with the propaganda, which, you know, if they weren't afraid of the competition, they wouldn't be doing that. So in a way that may just maybe a good sign that raw is starting to take hold. Well, again, I want to encourage you, pet parents, look around the clinic or ask, do you sell prescription diets? And if they say yes, run, run for your life because they do not have nutritional training. Even if they say, all right, my vet is a nutritionist, my vet nutritionist. Well, okay. You can't be a great pet nutritionist and sell prescription or kibble diets. It's not possible. Go back and listen to all of our podcasts. Just not going to happen. All right, so we've covered the blindness thing today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it still um, makes me laugh. Like, what? I know, it's I know. Next, next week it'll be the arms are falling off or something along that line. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so another question that we have, Dr. Jasek, is about parvo. Now, we're, we're, I want to do a, a rabies and, and vaccine webinar with you soon. Mm -hmm. So you guys listen up, you know, stay tuned for that. But let's talk about, uh, a lot of people are getting new puppies right now. They 
are going to get their boosters and all the shots and all that kind of jazz. I got an email and a pet parent was asking me what I thought about their puppy going in and getting their second round. And at first she said back uh, rabies. And I said, well, no, we would not recommend that at all. But um, then she came back and said, Parvo. And she said this, she said, my husband said, he's got to take the puppy in to get the Parvo shots because if the dog comes in contact, with any kind of parvo, he's going to die. Now we do know that parvo is quite serious, but puppies, um, and I read an interesting study on this the other night, but puppies, you know, can survive parvo um, if they stay hydrated. But let's talk about this. What's your recommendation on puppies and the parvo vaccine? Well, first of all, I think it's really important that pet parents find out what type of vaccine is being given and what all the other components are because a lot of us will call the quote-unquote parvo shot so it's it's misleading because you might think oh they're just getting parvo but actually these vaccines are four and five way they often have parvo distemper parainfluenza coronavirus uh, sometimes lepto they have a whole bunch of other components in them what the first thing I recommend and when I give puppy vaccines, so I have monovalent vaccines. So I have a vaccine that is just parvo and I have a separate one that's just distemper. So I'm only giving one component at a time. If I'm going to give a parvo vaccine, I'm only giving that one component. And the reason for that is it's just, it's so much easier on the immune system when you're hitting that young, you know, developing immune system with all of these different antigens at one time, it, it really, really can, it can mess it up and cause chronic inflammatory disease sometimes for the rest of the pet's life. So we want our puppies to be protected. So what, what I recommend, I like to start a little later, like nine or 10 weeks, and I give that one parvo vaccine. And then ideally I titer them. Um, so I wait about a month and a titer is when you measure the antibody level. So you measure the response to the vaccine and if the puppies, and I see the majority of puppies will mount, have a good antibody level after just one vaccine, probably 85%. And I don't give any more boosters at that point. So it isn't always necessary um, to, to booster them. And I think when you continue to do boosters with these multivalent vaccines, meaning these vaccines with all these different components, you are really hammering that, that young immune system and you are setting it up for things like chronic skin disease, chronic, you know, GI issues and all other sorts of, um, chronic inflammatory disease that, that we see. Um, I, I think, you know, if you're not going to do the titer and you want to know that your pet is protected, like if I have a client that doesn't want to do that titer test, then I will give it a second parvo booster. But again, I'm just doing, and I, and I do the distemper too, but we don't do them on the same day. We're just kind of focusing on parvo right now, but this would be the same thing for the distemper vaccine. Um, I don't assume that the puppy's protected with just that one parvo vaccine, but then I will just give it one more time. And I think 
it, it would be extremely, extremely rare that a puppy with, you know, two parvo vaccines wouldn't be protected. But my really big concern about puppies going into more conventional vet is how many different components are in that vaccine. And then they also tend to give, you know, dewormers and, you know, heartworm prevention. I know HeartGuard, I know, gives these little puppy packs so you get the first dose free. So they give so many other medications sometimes and preventatives on top of these vaccines. And it's, you're going the opposite way because you're hammering the immune system rather than supporting it and to help it build, you know, an, an immunity against parvo. It's very expensive, as they say, if your puppy gets parvo uh, to, to treat. They say, look, if, if your dog gets parvo, it's going to cost you a ton of money. So this is sort of a safety measure. But I think what they don't talk about are the other um, factors. And, uh, you know, several of the studies say, listen, um, 85%. So I, so I read some numbers and I thought that this was interesting. And they said, despite the dire veterinary warnings, parvo has a survival rate of 80, of about 85%. And that doesn't mean that 15% of the puppies die from parvo. What that means is that 15% of the puppies who are exposed to it will actually catch it and die. But the survival rate is greatly influenced by the treatment options. Um, so that's something to consider. But here's the other thing. These are chemical soups, as they call them, a bunch mm -hmm. of say, adjuvants in, in vaccines. And the chemicals that can be in these vaccines include the mercury, the aluminum, the formaldehyde, foreign proteins, and possible retroviruses. Mm -hmm. Also, that puppy is going to shed that virus for the next 21 days, right? So anytime he goes out, takes a walk, goes to the dog park, goes to training class, you know, he's actually shedding that parvovirus. So um, are you saying, Dr. Jacek, that if you had a new puppy, would you or would you not give them the parvo vaccine or would you do something different? Well, part of that would depend on where I planned on taking the puppy. You know, if, if I was going to be, you know, when we're in the city and we're, you know, if you're going to take the puppy to, to parks and training classes and, and places where the puppy would get exposed, um, I would probably do one parvo vaccine just to make sure that it's, that it's protected, but I would do the monovalent. And then again, I would check a tighter. Okay. So if the pet parent goes to the vet, how do they recognize monovalent? How do they say, all right, this is a monovalent vaccine versus a vaccine that's, you know, loaded up? Well, you have to ask. I mean, they just have to ask what is in, is this just parvo or does it have all these other components? And in my from what I know, it's pretty rare that anybody does the monovalent vaccines. I don't, I don't find too many clinics that, that do that. They call it the parvo vaccine, but it has all of these other components in it. So they can ask, they can use that word monovalent, or they can say what exactly is in this vaccine, you know, and, you know, ask questions, ask to see the box, ask, ask to see the, um, the insert, you know, you have the right to ask these questions and know what your pet is being given so that you're 
you're informed. You actually are 100% entitled to informed consent. You should know exactly what your pet is being given and you should, these, these questions should be welcome in your veterinary clinic. And if they're not, I find another vet because you certainly have the right. You're not, you're not, well, that's might interpret it that you're questioning their authority. And I think they might get defensive and, and a little bristly, but if they do move on, find somebody else, these, these questions, you know, should be welcome because you are inquiring on your pet's behalf and you are an advocate for your pet and, you know, ask, ask the questions, find out, see what they tell you. That would be the thing. And if they don't have the monovalent vaccine, can you just say, I'm going to wait and then go find someone like you who does carry that monovalent vaccine? I mean, you're not that waiting period. I think if people, they get in their mind, well, I can't wait because if I expose my dog, he's going to get sick. But if you had to, you know, hit the pause button, wouldn't you do that until you found someone that had the single source? That would be my recommendation. You know, I mean, I know people it's, you know, it is a time crunch with puppies and I get that because you've got this, you know, the ideal socialization period is eight to 16 weeks and you want to be getting them out and, you know, you, you, but you want to make sure that, that they're protected and, you know, some common sense things you can do there to not expose them unnecessarily chronic inflammatory disease. I mean, we see it all the time, you know, dogs are, they've, you know, itchy skin or chronic GI issues that are just, that we're always kind of managing. We never can quite get them to go away. And I think, I think a big cause of that can be over vaccinating these young puppies. All right. So puppy very first comes into the vet clinic, your recommendation for minimal vaccines would be what? Well, I do, um, I do do both parvo and distemper. So I would do a, I ideally do a monovalent parvo and then I do like about seven to 10 days later, I do the monovalent distemper. So I'm not even giving the two components on the same day, but we're protecting against both diseases. Now I, I do feel like parvo is more common, but in, in my experience, by far the majority, probably 95% of puppies, if they're treated aggressively with IV fluids, will survive it. Um, if they don't get the treatment, they, they get severely dehydrated. And that, you know, that can be a problem because it just can't take in any, any liquid. Um, so parvo is probably the most common. Distemper is extremely rare here in, here in Colorado. Now, you know, I'm, I make recommendations based on where we live here in the Denver area, other parts of the country, distemper might be more prevalent. I do the distemper vaccine because um, it's de much more deadly. Yeah, um, dogs that get, it's almost the, the opposite. There's more like about a 5% survival. It's, uh, distemper is very, very deadly if dogs get it. And, and also tends to have long lasting side effects. And so I'm building an immunity for the, for the life of the dog. So I don't know where that dog's gonna be going or traveling for the next 12 years. So I'd like to see it have an immunity um, against distemper as well. But ideally I will do the parvo and then I will do the distemper about a week later. And then about a month after that, I'll do the titer test and see if they have the antibodies. And then if they're low on either one of those, then I can give just that component. And then I feel like at that point, they're, they're good to go. I feel like we've, we've built a good immunity um, without, without over-vaccinating. 
And I think the other components in the vaccines um, are not big enough disease risks and increase the risk of having vaccine reactions to such a degree that I don't, I don't, I just don't recommend giving them. So if a dog were to come down with distemper, what would a pet owner see? Well, it's, it's multi-systemic. So, um, meaning it affects lots of different systems in the body. So you could see the diarrhea, you know, parvo is primarily gastrointestinal. There can be vomiting and diarrhea. Um, Distemper can affect many systems in the body. So it can cause diarrhea. It causes severe uh, respiratory signs. So real thick, snotty, you know, discharge from the eyes and nose. And then it also affects the nervous system. So I see puppies um, that come in and like the muscles on top of their head or their jaws will be like twitching. They get like you know, nervous tics where the, the muscles are twitching um, it, and it can even just cause extreme neurologic weakness. And it can be so damaging that um, puppies will have, if they do survive it, they will have ongoing symptoms like these, you know, neurologic tics, neurologic abnormalities and different different things like that. It's It's a real... It's a real devastating virus. So if they get the distemper, you can't just go in and vaccinate for it right then, right? We, or can you? I wouldn't think that once you get it, then what, what do you do if your dog gets distemper? Well, it's supportive care. You know, it's like any virus. There's no magic bullet treatment. I mean, there's, you know, there are some drugs out there now that are you know, supposedly antiviral. And there's some herbs and different things that, that you can give. But yeah, that once they have it, um, there's, there's no benefit really to vaccinating because they're going to, if they survive it, they're going to have a natural immunity. And so they would be able to fight it off in the future. But there's no point in vaccinating. It's so, so supportive care. So it's fluids. You try to keep up their, uh, their nutrition and support them and support the immune system. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with herbs and different things to help keep the immune system strong, but you really have to support the body in fighting it off. So if your dog gets parvo or if your dog gets distemper, you're going to give it supportive care, help it make it through, but then you don't need to vaccinate for it because they already are going right. to have an immunity built up. All right. So let's make sure that we're not confused on that front. All right. So you've got distemper and you've got parvo. Um, what other core vaccines would you say that a puppy needs? Those are the only two I give for, for the young puppies. And then um, for rabies, um, I recommend waiting until they're about six months so that their immune system is more mature. We have more distance between the vaccines. And rabies is a little trickier because it's it's not it's not common at all here in Colorado, uh, but there's regulations. So if you if you want to license your dog with your city or your county or you know if you're going to be taking your dog into most facilities like daycare, boarding, um, even some training facilities will require a current rabies shot. So it's it's you know there's these regulatory aspects. And the other vaccines are not 
required by law. And that's the other thing. If you, if you go in to your conventional vet and they tell you they won't work on your dog unless it's, unless they're current on their vaccines, that's ridiculous. You know, that the two, if your dog is sick or needs a, a medical procedure of some, some type, um, there's no correlation between those procedures and your dog being current on vaccines. That's, that's just a selling point. So kind of be aware of that. There are, and there are no laws or regulations around anything except for rabies. And then in adult dogs, it only needs to be given every three years if you're going to, you know, keep them on that. And I see most, you know, healthy dogs that are not over vaccinated as puppies, they're on a, you know, healthy, raw diet, and you're only giving them the rabies every, you know, every three years, most dogs will handle that okay. Some people choose not to give it, but then, you know, there's, there's regulation. So that's a personal choice if you choose not to continue to, um, to give the rabies vaccine. You just need to know that there could be, you know, regulatory implications. And there is a titer test for rabies too. So we can measure the antibody levels to see if your pet has, you know, has enough antibodies to, um, you know, to fight the, the disease if they get exposed. However, from a regulatory standpoint, usually that's not recognized as a substitution for the vaccine. So you can do that for your own information, but say your dog got out at loose and animal control picked it up and said, you have a current rabies shot? And you said, well, I have this titer, they're probably not going to even know what that is. <laughs> they're not going to accept it in lieu of the rabies vaccine. All right. So let's say that your dog has some issues. So um, the dog has had seizures um, from receiving a rabies shot. I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. If they're going to, if there's going to be a law that says, well, I'm sorry, you know, I know it's deadly and your dog almost died. But uh, you got to have it. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, and Colorado does also allow us a, to write a medical exemption for rabies. So this is actually a state, you know, there's a state form that allows us to, now from what I hear from clients, a lot of vets won't do this either, or they won't, it takes some extreme, I don't know what, what we would constitute the, you know, this being valid in, in a lot of veterinarians' mind. In my, from my perspective, if we have any sign of chronic inflammation, even something like itchy skin, we should not be vaccinating those animals at all. And if you have something like seizures, and especially if there's a documented vaccine reaction, you definitely don't want to be giving the, um, giving the vaccine. I see my cancer patients that go in and then they end up vaccinating them. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it's ridiculous, but Colorado does allow medical exemption. So if your pet is sick in any way, there is a form that can be filled out that gives you a valid exemption. So if, you know, you do get challenged or have to prove it, you can at least show that you didn't just opt not to give it. It was, there was actually a veterinarian recommended that it not be given. So I'm, I'm going to take my chances. Um, because I know my dog. Okay. My dog wouldn't bite anyone ever. Now she's always by my side. So she's not going to get picked up by, you know, the animal control either. Uh, by the same token, I'm not going to board her. Never, you know, she's not a dog that I would take to a facility to board. I would take her to family. So 
she's not going to ever get another rabies shot. And I had her eight years, so I've never had her uh, get a rabies shot. I'm certain that the breeder that she came from did give her a rabies shot. Uh, and she's 10. Now, we just took on a new German Shepherd. And I'm telling you, Dr. Jasek, this German Shepherd has some vaccine um, damage issues. That is chasing shadows, chasing shiny objects, chasing lights. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you guys something. It's exhausting dealing with a dog who gets in that mode, right? And there's so many other things that they do. Um, aggressive, uh, uh, aggression or chasing cars. There's a lot of these things that happen once you get, you know, vaccines. And so I think it, you're right. It's going to be up to the pet parent. You've got to look at your lifestyle. What are you planning to do with that dog? What is the risk versus the reward? Um, but I, I am just, I'm not anti-vax. I, I like what you said about the puppies, you know, starting them off with those Manavellet, um, single sourced, as I like to say, vaccines. But let me give you a statistic. A dog who is vaccinated three times as a puppy and again at a year, which is what most of the traditional vets do, and then annually vaccinated for distemper, he will been, have been vaccinated 15 times uh, with distemper if he lives to be 12 years old. 15 times. Now, a lot of people say, well, I only do the three-year um, the, tr the three-year vaccination. And they say most 12-year-old dogs who are vaccinated every three years will still be vaccinated eight times for distemper. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, in this article, it says, well, that's certainly better than 15 times. It's still seven times too many. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's unnecessary. And there's a immunologist who I think he's probably retired now, but his name is Ron Schultz and he studied this. So from a purely immunological standpoint, so he, you know, is not a veterinarian. He just studied canine immunity and how the body responds to, to vaccines. And he said, you know, once the body responds to an antigen, so you give a vaccine and once it responds, there is a memory in the body that immunity does not go away. And so he said there's absolutely no scientific evidence that, that shows that boosters are necessary or beneficial. Um, and all of the recommendations, including the recommendation for the rabies vaccine, all of these recommendations come from the vaccine company. They're not, they're not, this isn't being researched and tested elsewhere with the exception of, because Gene Dodds is doing that, you know, rabies, rabies study at her lab, but there's no independent research saying how often do these vaccines need to be given. It's, it's up to the, the, you know, the individual veterinary clinic and they're following the recommendations of the vaccine companies who are in the business of selling vaccines. So you just be aware of this, you know, and, and follow the money. Because if one clinic is saying, no, no, you need to be in every year for vaccines. Another one is saying every three years, there's no reason 
for that difference, except they want to get you in every year to sell you vaccines. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because they say, all right, there's no reason for the dog to come into the clinic. Typically, number one, if they're on a raw mm -hmm. diet, number two, you're doing minimal vaccines. How, how's a clinic supposed to make any money? And then it'll get you back in. Right. Right. Exactly. That's, that's, that's what, and that's the practice model in the, in the profession. That's how, you know, business numbers are, are looked at how, you know, what, what, what does it take to get people in the door, you know, every year? Well, you know, scaring them about the fact that their pet's going to get sick if they don't bring them in for their annual shots. That's a good way to, you know, to get them, to get them in the door. And I think too, you know, Didi, you were, you were talking about, about your new dog and I definitely see side effects like that after the rabies vaccine. But I think what happens, I mean, I, I do think dogs can be given, you know, that three-year rabies if people choose to do that and they're otherwise in really good health and not inflamed, not sick in any way that most dogs will handle that. But I think what happens in these young dogs um, a, a lot of them are fed kibble. So their bodies are inflamed anyway. They're hammered over and over. You know, they're getting these multivalent vaccines three or four times. So their immune system is already just going haywire. It doesn't know what's friend or foe anymore. It doesn't know what to react to or not to react to. And it's guts inflamed because it's on kibble. And then it gets to be, you know, between four and six months. And then you give them their rabies shot. And the body's already so damaged and so inflamed that this rabies, which is a neurologic virus, even though the vaccines have a killed form of it, it can still affect the, the central nervous system, especially when these puppies are already inflamed. And I think like you're experiencing, it can be lifelong changes. This is not like, oh, well, you know, they might, you know, have a little reaction, they get over it. No, this can cause a permanent disruption in the pet as you're seeing in your new dog. And in children, from what I understand, I, I um, had an associate veterinarian that um, worked for me for a while and her daughter had a um, vaccine injury after the MMR vaccine. I mean, this girl went into seizures. They had to put her in a deep, deep coma to get her to stop seizuring. They couldn't get the seizures to stop. And this was the evening. She had the MMR vaccine in the morning. This happened that night. And still the medical, you know, establishment would not recognize. She said she had to fight and she was very outspoken and she had to fight to even get it reported as a possible vaccine injury, like from the ER. But I learned from her that children nowadays get like between 50 and 60 vaccines by the time they're five years old. It is, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Like, because, you know, some of the vaccines have multiple components, but they, I mean, they start vaccinating in the delivery room now. They're given newborns like hepatitis and all this stuff. It's, it's ridiculous, but yeah, that many, that many. And so, and then, you know, they'll say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with the autism rates, but they started doing this in the mid eighties and you know, the increase, the like exponential increase in autism cases in children has gone up right along with the increase in vaccines. So 
you know, you can say no proven cause and effect, but that's some pretty strong evidence. So I think that what par- parents really need to walk away with today is you've got to ask your vet, do the single source vaccines and then tighter, okay? And then tighter and take a look. Make sure that you understand that leptospirosis vaccine is not a core vaccine. And Dr. Jasek, what I'm hearing over and over and over again is that the vets are just putting that right in there. They're- yeah, it's, a, it's part of the B combination shots. And that's what you really need to be careful. Lepto, they're just buying a combination shot that already has it in there. Um, and so that's where it's so important to, to ask because lepto has a high, high reaction rate. I mean, I quit giving the lepto vaccine many years ago because I just saw so many dogs have, have more, more vaccine reactions after being given these, these combination shots, you know, with the lepto. And so if you're taking a young puppy, as soon as these puppies are started at, you know, six weeks old, that's why I like to wait until they're a little bit older. The other thing there too, is if they've been, you know, nursing on their mom and they have these maternal antibodies, well, those can keep them from responding to the vaccines. So it's pointless and very damaging to give them the the vaccines, you know, certainly younger than eight weeks of age. You're just damaging the immune system and the chances of them mounting a good response are, are not that great. So that's why I like to wait until they're um, a little bit older. And I find that most puppies just just have great responses to the vaccines. The last question I want to ask you on today's uh, show is this. A lot of people getting these booster reminders. What do they need to know about booster reminders? Think about what, well, what are they wanting you to come in for? Um, How long has it been? Now I know with the lepto, they those are recommended every year for pets that are on those and the bordetella, which is the kennel cough, which is a worthless vaccine in my opinion, as far as providing any type of protection, because just about every coughing dog I've ever seen that seemed to have kennel cough. um, They've, they've all had the vaccine. I, I don't think it does any good. It's just required again for some facilities. There's no requirement for lepto Um, And I think the risk of exposure in your average dog that lives in the city is extremely rare. It's spread in the urine and they're not going to get it from squirrel pee in your backyard. (laughs) Heard that one too. You know, it just, just, just not going to happen. So don't just go in and say, okay, give my pet what it needs. That's like the worst thing you can do. Ask what they're recommending, why they're recommending it. Um, it, is your pet really at any risk for these diseases? And, you know, what are the potential side effects of your pet getting all these vaccines? And you have to, you have to ask some, you know, some, some questions and challenge your veterinarian a little bit as to, is this valid or is it routine? Cause I can guarantee you it, in most cases, it's just, okay, we want pets in every year. They, they decide on their practice model at a given clinic okay, we want to get pets in every year and we're going to do this, 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 and this, you know, every year on these pets. And you get that reminder is just mass generated. So you need to make sure 
that what they're recommending is appropriate for your pet. Good. But remember, put your pet on a species appropriate diet. This is one of the best things that you can do. Let's don't over vaccinate. Species appropriate diet is not a prescription diet, folks. We're going to start out with these core minimal vaccines, parvo, distemper. We're going to wait until the dog is at least six months old and give the rabies. And then we're going to titer. Okay. So I think that that's real easy for our pet parents to remember. Parvo, distemper, rabies at a later date, and titer. And these are the two things, I mean, and I have, this has been a, a practice foundation for me for, you know, a, know, a couple of decades now at least, that the two very, very most important things you can do for your pet is feed a species appropriate, whole food, ideally raw diet, and minimize vaccines and, and, and pharmaceuticals. Because there's all these other therapies out there that we can use, but how about if we don't, if your pet doesn't get sick and we don't need to use all the therapies. I'd rather not be treating cancer patients. I'd rather get them off to a good start, good diet, minimal vaccines, minimize you know, toxins in their environment, minimize other pharmaceuticals, and then we're not even having to go down that road. And, and I think we could make huge, huge improvements, especially by getting puppies off to the best start. So this is, these things are, are, are huge. And so simple, you have to feed your dog anyway. Feed it a species appropriate diet and the little bit more money you might spend, you're gonna save so many thousands in, in vet bills, um, you know, that it's, will, will more than make up for the, you know, feeding the, feeding the raw diet. That's like a real inexpensive insurance policy. And then don't do the vaccines, don't do the pharmaceuticals. Just keep all that stuff out of your dog's system and your chances of your dog getting cancer or some other horrible chronic disease are, are, are just going to be slashed. It's going to go down dramatically. The chances of your dog getting those kind of conditions is going to go down dramatically. Absolutely. All right. Uh, that is our show for today, everybody. Please get in touch with Dr. Judy Jasek, J-A-S-E-K, cancer-vet.com. If your dog has cancer, especially if your dog has cancer. I believe, because I have seen, that you need a second opinion. You definitely need a second opinion. Just like yesterday, um, I sent Dr. Jasek a picture um, from one of our customers. Um, and they had been, so let me back up. The picture was, it was a skin tag on the dog. And it blew up to about, you know, 10 times its size. And it almost looked like a big blister on the dog. Well, they took the dog in and uh, one of the big corporate clinics here quoted them $3,000 to take this thing off. And your recommendation was totally the opposite. And mm -hmm. so I think that you need a second opinion. Then you can make your decision. You will hear why Dr. Jasek says to leave something alone, to not mess with it. And you can listen to your other vet at the tune of $3,000, why they suggest to take it off. And I will tell you this, that most of the time, Dr. Jasek, it is all fear-based, right? And when we are driven mm -hmm. by fear, we don't think correctly. All we know is that we don't want this thing to happen of which they are 
submitting to us that could happen. Right. And the other thing about these masses and lumps and bumps, and, you know, without taking a, a, a closer look or, you know, actually looking at the cells in, in a given mass, you're not going to know exactly what it is. But I can tell you, and one of the reasons I've become much, much more of a minimalist when it comes to surgery, meaning I don't recommend removing lumps and bumps unless they're causing an issue. Like you have a, a mass in the bladder and the pet can't pee. Okay. We have to you have to allow them to pee or they can't poop or, you know, there's some, it's blocking some vital function or it's very painful, restricting mobility or something like that. Um, I don't recommend removing um, other, you know, masses and lumps. And, and the reason for that is I have seen it blow up so much. And the thing you have to remember is there's this school of thought in that, well, if my dog has this lump and it's cancerous and I move that, I got rid of the cancer. You didn't. Cancer is a systemic disease and it started in the body way before that lump popped up. So the only thing you're doing by removing that lump is removing this external visual sign that your dog has cancer. And I know you'd like to see it gone because you don't want that constant reminder, but I have seen so, so many times that um, the lumps regrow um, which is common, and they regrow with a vengeance. When those cells come back, they they regrow much more aggressively, or you encourage spread. I mean, I have seen, you know, so many dogs end up getting metastasis after they go through a surgery because you're, you know, you're putting the pet through something stressful, and there it's like there is some sort of signaling mechanism in it, when there's cancer in the body, you remove this lump, it's going to be more inclined to take hold somewhere else. I mean, I don't have scientific proof of that, but I've seen it enough times to really, really caution people against just going in and removing a, a little, little skin mass that comes up. And the other thing is there's other ways to, to manage it. You know, I do ozone therapy, these little skin masses on the outside, I inject the ozone right underneath and that can help either manage it or shrink it and, you know, just make it such that it doesn't turn into anything, um, anything more. But this illusion that you remove this mass and you're removing the whole problem, it's, it's, it's not true. And it's actually, it's, it's the opposite. And I totally get that you want to see that thing gone, but you are not curing anything. You're putting your pet through a stressful procedure that's costing you a whole lot of money. So, you know, uh, definitely get another viewpoint on, on that before just rushing your pet into surgery. Well, the one thing that I didn't include in that information that I sent you was that this particular dog has had a mass already removed. Mm, okay. Interesting. So um, again, there's just the proof in what you're saying that you're seeing over and over and over again. So if your dog has cancer, certainly you want to get in touch with Dr. Jacek, get a second opinion, set up a phone consultation. Um, but if you want information on the raw diet, if you want um, to run by her um, what your vet has said, that your dog's going to get salmonella poisons, going to get botulism, and your kids are going to go blind. Still, It just still makes me laugh. I just can't, I can't even hear that without laughing because it's just that absurd.
All right, everybody. Well, thanks for joining the Raw Dog Food Truth. Please tell your friends about this podcast. Where can you get this kind of in-depth medical information? Where can you get this type of real information? That's why we call it the Raw Dog Food Truth. All right. I don't care if you don't buy my food. I'm in the pet health business and I want your pet to be the best that it can be and stay with you on this earth as long as it can. And that is Dr. Judy Jasek's intent as well. All right, everybody. So remember your pet's health is our business and friends don't let friends feed kibble. Oh, snap. Find out how you can start your dog on the road to health and longevity. Go to rawdogfoodandcompany.com, where friends don't let friends feed kibble and where your pet's health is our business. Just snap.